The more that Trump and his supporters feel beleaguered, the more entrenched they become in their desire to not just fight back against the system, but to destroy significant aspects of it. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. By the time this airs, it will have been a couple of weeks since John McCain passed away, but it happened just a couple of days ago as I'm recording this, and so it's very much on my mind. A lot of people have been celebrating his achievements as bipartisan or a nonpartisan patriot. There's something to that. He certainly was willing to work across the aisle, as he did in the important Feingold-McCain bill on campaign finance. But that, to me, doesn't quite capture what's special about John McCain and how he models the kind of politics that we need. By and large, he was a partisan. And some people have been using that fact to point out that he wasn't the, the hero some people make it out to be. But in a democracy, we need partisans. We need people who are willing to fight for their ideals. And the case of somebody like John McCain on many issues, those weren't my ideals. I'm on the left. He was a conservative. What I admired about McCain, though, was that even when he was fighting for his ideals, even when he was fighting for his values, he still recognized that there need to be things on which we can all agree. Not because particular policy issues aren't important, but on the contrary, because they are so important that they can drive us to deep conflict, perhaps even to civil war, unless we also agree on the rules and the institutions in the background that allow us to have that kind of disagreement. This is why that video clip that's been played a lot of John McCain putting in place some of his supporters at a town hall a few days before the 2008 presidential elections in which he was running is so meaningful. He said, of course I want to win. Of course I think I would make a much better president than Barack Obama. Of course I think there's lots of things wrong with Obama. But you know what? If he does win, we don't have to be scared because that's the nature of a democracy. In the words of Michael Ignatieff, he always was very good at keeping the distinction between an enemy and an adversary. He didn't think of Democrats as his friends. That's very difficult to do in politics. We're never going to get there. But he thought of them as adversaries he can respect and with whom he shares a stake in the basics of a political system rather than as enemies. And it is that which in this political moment, seems to be getting lost. And that's why I was very saddened by his passing. But now I'm really thrilled to have my first repeat guest on the show ever, Sherry Berman, who is a professor of politics at Barnard College. You know, really the conversation that we just had just ranges very widely, trying to assess what has changed in the last two years. I've now been running this podcast for over a year and a half. We've had lots of great conversations about different aspects of this political moment. But we haven't looked back to say how have things changed since Donald Trump got elected in the United States. On the whole, should we be more or less concerned about the state the world is in. What have we learned from all of the tremendous activity in political science and the broader social sciences in the last couple of years? Do we understand the nature of populism better now than we did? It was a great wide-ranging conversation and it really helped orient me in this political moment and I hope it'll do the same for you 
as well. So, Sherry, you're actually my first repeat guest on the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here again. And I thought, you know, it's been about a year and a half since we recorded the first conversation. And I hope that we've learned a little bit about the nature of populism and how to fight it on this podcast in the last 18 months. But there's obviously been a much broader debate through books, through newspaper articles, through scholarly research about what's going on in this moment. And there's been a lot of political developments in those nearly two years. So I guess I would like to start with just trying to orient ourselves where we're actually at. So starting with just the political side, how are we doing? <laughs> is, is Donald Trump destroying liberal democracy? Is the threat that populism poses to liberal democracy more or less acute now around the world? How would you compare this political moment to where we were at two years ago? So that's a great question. I think if we're talking about the West, that is to say Europe and the United States, we would have to say that things have gotten... I would say significantly worse over the past year. And that's reflected in a lot of the ratings that agencies like Freedom House, Varieties of Democracy have done. And what that means basically is not just Trump, but other populists have kind of corroded in particular, the liberal foundations, I think, of our democracies, sort of polarizing citizens, demonizing minorities, creating more enemies, and also kind of generally fighting back against the checks and balances that are built into all of our political systems. Of course, also, as far as vote shares go, populist parties have continued to do very well in elections in Europe. There's an interesting election coming up in about a week in Sweden, which we would think of as perhaps one of the least likely places for populists to do well. And they're now running second in the polls, which is a pretty scary development, I think, for a variety of reasons, outsized for the importance of Sweden, perhaps otherwise, but reflective, I think, of a lot of trends. So I would have to say that the trends in liberal democracy over the past year have been pretty negative, even if that's not true for the world overall, where democracy still remains much more prevalent than it would have been a generation ago. So let's go through a few of those cases to understand where we're at and then perhaps bring it back to the United States. So certainly countries where authoritarian populists already looked like they were essentially destroying liberal democracy two years ago have just gone even further towards the route of absolute straightforward dictatorship. I mean, Turkey, I think, is one of the examples which certainly looked very worrying two years ago. I don't think anybody would have been surprised two years ago that Erdogan may well end up as just a straight-out dictator. But the speed and the extent to which he has built a very, very repressive regime is still sobering, I would say. What about Poland and Hungary? which are interesting cases because they are countries which political scientists would once have described as stable, consolidated democracies. How do you see the situation there? So, I mean, I think that I would put Poland and Hungary in a similar category to Turkey. That is to say, countries that once looked not so long ago to be fairly well on their way to consolidated liberal democracies, but all three of which have undergone such significant backsliding that there's certainly not any more liberal democracies. And even the purely democratic character of these polities is now in question. Hungary has gone further simply because Orban has been in power longer and Polish society is notoriously contentious. And so the combination of the less time in power combined, I think, with the contentious nature of Polish civil society has meant that Poland has 
has slipped back less far than Hungary. But certainly, even if we think of the last election that happened in Hungary relatively recently, outside observers rank that in the sort of lingo as free but not fair. That is to say, people could go and vote. They weren't stopped by, you know, armed goons and things like that. But the nature of the election, the ability of the opposition to freely contest, the press, all of these other things were such that actually the choices that people had were not really very free ones. And so, you know, you had an election. Orban could claim a pretty powerful popular mandate. But other than that, the sort of democratic aspects of Hungary are pretty minimal at this point. Yeah. And one of the interesting things was that there was actually some suggestions about vote rigging as well. And the question is whether or not that would have been more extreme if it had been necessary. So semi-fortarian systems can keep some of the different fraudulent forms of voting in reserve. So they use them if necessary, but they don't have to use them if it's not necessary. And certainly in Hungary, I, at this point, feel that it's impossible to displace Viktor Orban by democratic means. If Viktor Orban is going to go, it is going to involve some form of social revolution. Now, it may be timed around elections. It may be that at the next elections, it is quite clear that the opposition is doing better than him and that there has been forms of voter fraud or extreme forms of gerrymandering of a political system and then there's sort of mass protests in the wake of the election, so it may be connected to one. But it's hard, I think, at this point to believe that the opposition will just outpoll Viktor Orban and he will smile and say, well, I've ruled this country for a lot of years and now I'm handing over to the opposition peacefully. Poland, I guess, in my impression, is still more of an open question. The government has not yet been re-elected. They've only been in power about two and a half years and we have elections coming up in a year and a half. And to me, it feels like those are going to be a crucial test. I don't think the system is far enough along that the government is going to be able to make it impossible for the opposition to win. Certainly the system there as well is not entirely fair because the government has already gained control over the airwaves and all kinds of other things. But there I still think the opposition has a chance of winning at the ballot box. If that doesn't happen in a year and a half, it looks like Poland is going to be following the Hungary's footsteps, however. Is that how you would see it? Or Yeah, and I think that that brings up a really interesting question, which I think is important for all of the countries in the West that we might talk about, right, which is this question of the opposition, right? So looking at countries close by, let's say Hungary, the opposition has to realize that when dangers to liberal democracy are acute, that their opponent is really the illiberal Democrat or the semi-authoritarian, and that fighting against one another is really a very, very bad strategy. And the reason why that's so particularly relevant is the Hungarian case is a good one, right? Because we could have imagined an election or so ago, an opposition pulling together and forcing Orban either to do something more nasty around election time, which might very well have spurred a backlash, or even potentially pushing him out of the dominant position that he had. At this point, as you said, that's going to be really, really unlikely. And so the question in Poland is not just what the current government wants to do, how autocratic it wants to be, how much it wants to change Poland in a liberal or even undemocratic direction, but whether the opposition can pull itself together enough overcome whatever differences it has to focus its energy on fighting the immediate enemy, that is to say, creeping illiberalism and democratic backsliding in Poland. And one of the striking things 
has been how difficult that's proven in many countries. I mean, I think there's all of these sort of prior assumptions we have about populism, one of which is that these people are sort of a little crazy and chaotic, and once they get into government, they fall apart. That's actually not true. Populist candidates and parties tend to be in power for longer than non-populist parties and candidates, in part because they are able to gerrymander the political system. And this is another one. You might think that, look, well, if these populists come to power, Obviously, the opposition has such a strong incentive to rally around the cause of liberal democracy that it's going to find it easier to paper over some of its sort of disagreements and splits. And we've seen actually time and time again how hard it is. And in Poland, there's still a very real question about the extent to which the opposition is going to unite before the elections there in order to displace the current government. So that's an important point. So we've had Turkey at one extreme, Hungary and Poland. What about the ability of populists to win in the most consolidated democracies in Western Europe and and North America and the damage they've done there. So before we get to the United States, what happened in Italy and how would you assess the danger that that government poses? Well, that's a great question because Italy is the first time. We've had populists in coalition governments before in Europe, Austria being perhaps the most recent case. But in Italy, we have a government now that is ostensibly made up of pure populists, populists of the sort of nativist right, and also populists that were ostensibly kind of on the, I don't know, center or left. The the five-star movement is a kind of a mishmash that's hard to categorize. But you now have a government composed of people who were entirely anti-system, that is to say, who really thought the entire system was corrupt. They were against the establishment. They were very much outside of the mainstream. And so what we're going to see in Italy is what the consequences of that are. I mean, one interesting thing that's happened already is that perhaps because they have a much more consolidated or clear-cut negative vision, the right-wing populists have proven much more adept Hmm. in power than the left-wing populists who have now lost significant standing as far as polling is concerned, as well as clearly predominance with in the government. So the agenda is really being set by the right in Italy now, both on the domestic level and, you know, sort of on the regional, that is to say, European level. And so their time in power has enabled them to consolidate their hold over both the electorate and the kind of agenda setting function in Italy. That's actually a great point. I mean, one of my fears about left forms of populism has always been not just that it can be generally destructive, as we see with Chavez in Venezuela and so on, but also that when it comes to crunch time, it's likely to lose against right-wing populism. And one way of thinking about this is if you have a left challenge to democracy and a right challenge to democracy, which one wins? But another one is a different form of sort of seeing that in action is in Italy, where you have both of those in government at the same time. And actually, Cinque Stelle, the more or less left populist movement, has a bigger share in the government. It has more MPs, it had more votes. And yet the government agenda so far seems to be entirely driven by the right In opinion polls now, the right-wing populist party, the League, is doing much better than the five-star movement. And so actually what you've seen over the last few years is a pretty radical movement of voters as well, who started off sort of with a center-left party, the Partito Democratico, which has many deep flaws and issues, but in terms of its values and so on, is a relatively decent party. They became disenchanted with that party for understandable reasons, including corruption scandals and so on, which have been endemic in Italian politics on all sides for a long time. So they end up with this anti-system party that has its roots on the left. The five-star movement, I always describe it a little bit as for John Stewart had actually started a political movement in 2007, 2008. You know, he would have claimed for it to be bipartisan in certain ways, but it would also have been clear that he and his milieu come from the left. And that's similar, I think, for someone like Beppe Grillo, the founder of the five-star movement. 
So they started to vote for the Five Star Movement, but now that the Five Star Movement is in a coalition with just an incredibly xenophobic right-wing populist party, a lot of them have transferred their affections yet again and have actually migrated to that party. So that's a remarkable migration of voters over the last few years. Yeah, and I think watching that tells us a lot about some broader dynamics, right? So the fact that voters could move relatively easily from five-star to the league tells us that really it's not so much left and right that distinguish these parties, right, but that they were both anti-system, that they were anti-establishment, that they were against, again, you know, sort of the corrupt politicians and parties that had governed Italy for so long. And so it was this negative appeal that really attracted voters. And so one once, again, the five stars started to fall apart a little bit and not be able to assert itself, it was relatively easy for them to move to a party that ostensibly looks quite different, but in fact, at whose core is really this anti-establishment appeal. The other thing I would say that's really important to note is the problem with being an anti-party party. Right. Mm -hmm. So Five Star built itself as a party that was not a party. It didn't want to have organizational infrastructure. It didn't want to have politicians who were professional politicians. And so the problem with that is that, you know, it then becomes very hard to assert yourself and to coordinate when you get into power. And so we've seen that actually previous to this election with their politicians at the local level, mayors and other kinds of things who just come into power with the idea that they're going to shake the system up, but very little idea of how the system actually works. And it it enables them to be both outmaneuvered relatively easily by more strategic politicians and also to do a crappy job in office, which only aggravates voters even more. And so, I mean, I think the second thing that the Italian case has taught us is that if you want to play the political game, even if you're against, you know, significant parts of the reigning order, you know, you have to be organized. You have to have networks. You have to know how the system works. And you can't just be Again, sort of anti-everything. You have to be able to build in order to maintain your voters and do something when you're in power. That's an important point. I think about that in American politics a lot. I mean, I think sometimes people are classified by certain sets of ideological leanings in a way that really oversimplifies things. That's true on parts of the right, which is why deeply for I dislike every aspect of his political program been much less scared of a President Ted Cruz than a President Donald Trump, because I think that he does actually have a real stake in the political system. In a very, very different way, I think that Elizabeth Warren is sometimes falsely called a populist because, you know, she has some pretty robust language around the failings of corporate America and so on. But in terms of her values, in terms of her rhetoric, actually, in terms of her personal background, uh, it's very clear that she is an incredibly thoughtful person who realizes that you can't just abolish the political system, who realizes that you need to actually understand how institutions work in order to effectively reform them and so on. And so I think some of the people she's sometimes equated with, actually, the differences are much deeper than meets the eye. But going back to Italy, what do you think the likely outcome of this government is? We're only a few months in. But are you more concerned now than when we got elected, less concerned now? What are the dynamics that we're seeing at play there? So I'm definitely more concerned. I don't want to come off as a horrible pessimist, but it's hard not to be these days. I'm loving it. I get to tell everybody on the podcast that we're still in the midst of a deep crisis and I don't have to do anything. I can just ask neutral questions and you overwork for me. So thank you, Cheryl. Have you on again next episode? <laughs> well, nobody wants to listen to something that makes them feel like they want to go home and stick their head in a tub of water. But, but we're um, doing it in a very cheerful, engaged way. If you don't listen to the content, it sounds like we're having fun. 
So again, getting back to some of the things that you already said, first of all, again, we see the increasing dominance, both rhetorically and as far as agenda setting, on the part of the far-right nativists. And this has been damaging both on the domestic and on the European level. So one of the things that they've done very much is distract attention from other things and focus it in a very Trump-like way on, you know, problems that have been caused by immigrants, whatever it is, crime, unemployment, whatever. And so rather than focusing on the things that Italians are rightly upset about, this is all about, you know, sort of displacing anger onto an easy target. And we've also seen already what they've done at the regional level. I mean, there was definitely a pullback from the openness of a few years ago as far as immigrants and refugees have concerned. But even a country like Italy, right, which should be begging the European Union for help in many ways, has just basically turned around and forced the European Union to become even more restrictive, not just as far as immigrants mm-hmm. and refugees are concerned, but actually to question the long-standing open borders policy that has been one of the hallmarks, one of the successes of the European Union. And so in a remarkably short time, I would say that they've managed really to impress their agenda both at the domestic and the regional level and in ways that are not favorable either for Italians or for Europeans more generally. Yeah, I mean, one of the striking feelings of the Five Star Movement and to a lesser extent the government came through this horrible uh, bridge collapse in Genova where the government immediately rushed to blame the European Union for the collapse on sort of very spurious grounds. And it turned out that there had actually been a project to renovate and reinforce this bridge, which had been stridently hindered by the local five-star politicians who had claimed that it's not necessary at all. So that's a nice little parable for the kinds of damage which this form of politics can do. But there is also a bigger question about the extent to which this government will manage to undermine democratic rules and norms in the country and to the extent to which it might end up doing huge economic damage by, for example, crushing out of the euro. I don't quite have an opinion yet. I was in Italy for a week this summer and I spoke to a lot of people there, but I think it's probably still a little too early to tell quite where we're headed with that. The best piece of news that I would put forward there is that populist governments actually, I think on average, stay in power for about twice as long as non-populist competitors. But an average Italian government in the post-war era has been in power for about 15 months. So if we're saying that it might be about 30 months in Italy, that's probably not long enough to do very grievous damage, but we'll see. Another trend that we've seen that is much stronger than I would have anticipated a year and a half or two years ago is, and I'm still hoping to find a better term for this, the populistification of formerly mainstream center-right parties. And that's certainly something that has transformed European politics a lot, and especially Western European politics in the last couple of years. In Eastern Europe, it tends to be more new insurgent parties that are coming up. For someone like Viktor Orban, of course, is populistified. He won election as a relatively straightforward center-center-right politician. But whether it is the Bavarian section of the Christian Democrats, whether it is parts of the French center-right, certainly whether it's the Austrian center-right party, which is now in a coalition with the far-right. We've seen in country after country that kind of trend. There's also questions about the Conservative Party in Britain. How do you assess that? And do you think that that's a straightforwardly scary development? Or do you think that this is in part center-right parties trying to stay in control of the electorate and perhaps it's the lesser evil compared to allowing straightforwardly populist parties to gain? So I would say, actually, I think it's both. I mean, clearly, center-right parties are adopting more, I would say, nationalist and populist rhetoric and agendas precisely because they're afraid of losing their voters to 
the farther right. And they're open about why they're doing that. So, I mean, I think that's definitely part of what's going on. But I think it's dangerous because what it is doing, again, is it is both bringing a nationalist agenda or a populist agenda into the mainstream of European politics. It's legitimizing populist parties. And it's very unclear over time who the ultimate beneficiaries of that will be, right? So even though center-right parties are doing this to win back their voters, it's not clear that the voters at some point, since we haven't seen enough elections to really judge, are not going to say, okay, why should we vote for the pale copy? Let's take the real thing. So first of all, we don't know how this is going to play out, even as an electoral strategy. And and the other question, of course, is that there's an assumption here that a populistified center-right party isn't ultimately going to turn as dangerous to democracy as the populist party itself would. And it's not quite clear to me that that's true. I think it might be that the populistified center-right parties wind up being just as destructive of the institutions. But I think this brings me back, perhaps this is my own little pet peeve, to a point that we discussed earlier about the opposition. Part of the reason why center-right parties feel they need to move to the right is because there's nothing tugging them to the left. And so part of this story has to be told is what's going on on the other side of the political spectrum. That is to say with the opposition, to to use some of the terms that we were using before. I mean, right now we have a left in Europe that is very weak, not just electorally. I mean, we've seen mainstream center-left social democratic parties been eviscerated in recent elections in many, many countries. But ideologically, rhetorically, they've not been able to mount a significant, coherent, consistent, appealing challenge to the populist right. So all of the pressure for parties to the center and right is to move to the right because they're not really threatened rhetorically or electorally from the left. And so, you know, if we want to wonder why these parties are moving one direction rather than the other, we can't just look at what's pulling them Hmm. to the right. We need to understand why they're not being pulled further to left, particularly on these issues. There's definitely in Europe, as there is a lot of evidence in the United States, a greater willingness to move to the left on economic issues. But on social and cultural issues, the agenda is being entirely set by the populist right because the center left and the left doesn't really have a good way of pulling voters in the opposite direction. So what do you think the center-left and the left would need to do in order to pull voters back? Well, they would need to have an alternative vision of how Europe can move forward in its more diverse guise and yet still be Europe, right? Still maintain attachments to national traditions, to European traditions, how immigrants can make these countries stronger, different, but not so different that they're not recognizably still, you know, France, Austria, Italy, Sweden, whatever. And that's really not been a vision that the left has been able to offer for the last generation. It's been entirely dominated by this either dystopian one peddled by the populist right, or relative silence by the left, presumably on the assumption that everybody accepts the kind of more cosmopolitan and diverse societies that are emerging in Europe without seeing any potential downsides. And clearly, a lot of voters don't share that particular optimistic vision. So I share part of that fear. I'm doing some reporting in Germany at the moment, and I've been struck by the failures of the institutions, which have actually been very visible in the last weeks. Just in the last month or so, we've seen a huge far-right protest in the city of Chemnitz, basically going in pursuit of anybody who looked foreign. We've seen a Yazidi woman in a small town recognize and be threatened by her former IS captor, who kept her as a sex slave and the German institutions failing to pursue any form of action against him 
to the extent that this woman fled back to Iraq because she thought it was safer than staying in this town in Germany. We have seen somebody who was recognized as a very senior terrorist being deported back to, I believe, Tunisia. And then because there had been some irregularity in the administrative procedure, there's now a German court that's basically ordering the government to bring him back to Germany. And we've also seen some horrible murders. This is one of the things that I'm looking into for this piece, in which the refugee who did commit the murder had done a series of very earnest crimes, including you know rapes and robberies, and basically not been punished in any kind of way. And when I look at the ensemble of those things, it does seem to me like the political system just needs to become much more effective and tougher at enforcing the ground rules of a multi-ethnic society. And that is true of the few refugees who commit serious crimes, as much as it is of the native-born Germans who go in pursuit of anybody who looks foreign in Chemnitz. And it's actually, I think, to me, part of the same agenda. Now, you know, there are some political parties on the left that do seem to be, I wouldn't say doing what I want or what you want, but that certainly seem to in a very explicit way, defending their cultural flank from the right. Let's put it that way. So the Danish Social Democratic Party in particular has changed its stance on a whole set of issues quite radically over the last couple of years. They're not in government, but they actually voted for a pack of legislation which included things like saying, if you are, and this is a particularly unfortunate term, a ghetto kid, so the government is actually going to designate areas of Copenhagen and other cities as ghettos and provide differential obligations for the people who live in those. So if you live in one of those areas, uh, you will have to send your kid to some form of state-run childcare, I think, at, when it turns one. And even certain crimes are going to be punished more heavily within those areas than in other areas. Now, I have some you know, deep concerns about the particular form this takes. I think making distinctions between citizens depending on where they live is unacceptable. But do you think there's something to the broader strategy here that other center-left parties and left parties in Europe should emulate? Or do you think that the path of the Danish Social Democratic Party is really in the wrong direction? So I think that basically what we're seeing is parties of the center-left waking up and realizing how much they're suffering both electorally and as far as the agenda-setting function is concerned. And my worry is that in an attempt to overcorrect for past failures, they are allowing the nationalist right to set the agenda. So, you know, I think it is perfectly correct, reasonable, all those kinds of things to say, look, we are going to make sure that there are enough police and administrative positions around to maintain law and order, to make sure that everybody who's getting benefits is doing what they're supposed to do in order to get them. Those are things that should have been thought of when decisions were made to allow in X number of immigrants, right? So the German case is instructive here because you had all of these new people come in without the administrative capacity to actually process them and integrate them in an effective way. Like, Government should not take on challenges that they don't have the administrative and bureaucratic capacity to deal with. All true. But allowing the agenda to be about law and order, a 
about enforcing our values only without also being able to articulate some of the positive benefits, I think, again, risks allowing not just the populist right to set the agenda, but enabling this drift to the right among the electorate that I think is very dangerous, not just for the left, but for liberal democracy more generally. So the problem I have with what the Danish Social Democrats have done is not only that I think some of it is a little bit too illiberal for my tastes, right? I think differentiating citizens is problematic, even if you want to say, look, here in Denmark, we do X and Y and Z, and we want to make sure everybody is socialized into these values, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, if you decide that you have a problem of social integration and you make school obligatory for all children at a younger age, we can have a debate about that. I mean, yes. school is obligatory already. I don't know that it would be reasonable to say from three weeks old, that seems a little to me for complicated reasons. By the age of six, it's clearly fine. So, you know, perhaps we can push it back to four or three. That's something you can have a real debate about. But saying, hey, you happen to live in this neighborhood, yes, which wink, wink means you're not a real Dane, quote unquote. So therefore you have a special obligation. That's just something that to me is clearly a violation of liberal yes. democracy. And the problem is, again, that what they've done is they've adopted these kinds of policies and this kind of rhetoric without being able to offer something more positive. And I think that, again, the problem there is that what you're doing is you're kind of mainstreaming a certain view of immigrants rather than mainstreaming a view of what a new Denmark that's more diverse, but still mm. Danish, can be. And so what I would like to see, both for the health of the left and for the health of liberal democracy more generally, is more discussion about how to take the reality that's not changing in Europe, right? We have a multi-ethnic Europe. That's just the way it's going to be. And how that can, again, create a Europe that's better, more dynamic, but still recognizably European in some way. Mm. Um, and I think part of that, again, is making sure that everybody plays by the rules and that the government has the ability to ensure that people people do and are punished when they don't. But I think it also has to be more about something positive rather than just correcting for the obvious negatives. That seems to me like a great distinction. I do think that part of a problem in some European countries is a hesitation to enforce the rules. And politically, for the left and the center-left, that means that they need to cover that flank. They need to show that they are willing and able to put the institutions we need in place in order, for example, to protect this UCD woman against her IS captor. And by the way, investigate this IS captor who may pose a danger for all kinds of other reasons as well. And when people see that not happening, they understand we get enraged and questions of law and order start to dominate. So our task is not to say, hey, we're going to go in law and order completely and, and this is going to take over. It is to cover our flank on that side in order to take the initiative on other issues, including economic redistribution and other things. So we've talked about a lot of different European countries. What about the United States? Where are we at now compared to, say, the time of the 2016 election in terms of the threat to our political institutions? Well, I think it's definitely increased. And I think what we've seen is the normalization of a lot of behaviors that we would have thought would not have been accepted a couple of years ago. And it's also clear that the more that Trump and his supporters feel beleaguered, the more entrenched they become in their desire to not just fight back against the system, but to destroy significant aspects of it. So I would say that the, you know, the state of liberal democracy in this country has really declined in the last, you know, whatever, year or so. And I think that we have great reasons to be worried. And in fact, I think that this growing kind of legal and other kinds of, you know, scandals have actually in a way kind of made things worse, hopefully, before they make them 
better. That is to say, again, I think what it's done is it's just deepened the polarization and the sense by many that the system is somehow rigged. And we have to figure out some way, obviously, to get out of that or people are going to be willing to, again, rip apart that system if they don't actually believe that it is legitimate. I'm trying to think through where I think we are compared to some of the predictions we made two years ago and I made two years ago. I mean, I think that Trump has thankfully been reasonably ineffective in certain ways, which I think we knew we could hope for. He's also, however, become more effective in the last year or so. I mean, certainly the administration is now a much better functioning system than it was in the first few months. At the same time, on a whole range of things, things have been worse than we anticipated. I mean, certainly when we talk about the nature of the Republican Party, I remember there being big debates around the time of the election of whether the Republican Party will essentially contain Trump or whether over time through a series of civil wars and very contentious primary battles, he would be able to take control of it. Well, what's happened is much more extreme than either of those things. It simply flipped over on its belly and sort of went into submission pose. Uh, the extent to which the Republican Party is now just a propaganda arm for Donald Trump willing to not just stand for, but be complicit in some very basic violations of democratic norms is extreme. I also think that the speed of the attack on various law enforcement agencies has actually been more rapid, more worrying than perhaps I would have anticipated. I mean, at this point, Donald Trump has actually managed to replace the director of the FBI, the deputy director of the FBI, and a whole set of key personnel on some of the most important investigations. Uh, as we're recording this, it has just been announced that Ghan, the White House counsel, is going to step down. You know, repeatedly Donald Trump has demanded the firing of various mm. agents, and then in very irregular ways, they were in fact fired. So the ability of the executive to undermine the rule of law quite directly in those ways concerns me. And it's particularly concerning because the piece of good news that we did have in the last weeks in particular the verdict against Manafort and the plea deal with Cohen, in my mind, set up a very big clash down the line. It seems obvious to me that Robert Mueller will come up with something that is very damaging to Donald Trump and most likely will put him in serious legal peril. And it also seems quite obvious to me that Donald Trump is not willing to accept the legitimacy of that investigation and is going to do absolutely what he can in order to defend himself including pardons for some of his close associates and perhaps himself, as necessary. And whenever that moment of political clash comes, it's going to be very important for us to respond. And I don't think we know any better now than we did a year and a half ago who will win that clash. It's not at all clear to me that the institutions will prevail. They may, but it's not obvious to me that they will. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, again, as most folks have said, these midterm elections are really crucial. They're crucial both as a signaling mechanism, and they're also crucial as far as the balance of power is going to be concerned as a lot of these trends sort of play themselves out. I mean, if the Democrats don't manage to win back at least one of the houses of Congress, all of these things are just going to accelerate because Trump will have what he sees as a renewed mandate, which, by the way, would be relatively or somewhat unusual because, again, midterm elections sometimes or oftentimes don't necessarily go well for the party in power. So if he can claim to have a mandate after that, then he will be emboldened not only to continue with some of these more outrageous moves of his, but it will consolidate the Republican Party further behind him, eliminating an important source of potential pushback against some of his 
more extreme positions. And it will also probably send the Democrats into further, or hopefully not, but potentially further infighting, which will only diminish their ability, again, to put forward candidates at various levels, a coherent picture nationally, and all those kinds of things. So, yes, I mean, I think that there's some very serious things that are going to be playing themselves out over the next months regarding the health of American democracy. So, as Barack Obama once said, don't boo, vote. It's important. We've talked through a bunch of empirical developments and tried to assess where we're at. And, you know, I think uh, perhaps you are even a, a tad more pessimistic than I am on the whole, but I think we're agreed in seeing the situation as being very serious and, and even more serious than two years ago. I mean, I think one odd thing is that it's become normal even for us. You know, two years ago, I at least personally felt like the world was in free fall. And now I think intellectually, as you've outlined, there are reasons to be even more worried than we were at that point. But the worry is not as fresh as it was two years ago. It's not this odd transformation where suddenly you think, oh, oh, damn, the worst things are possible. It's not possible to feel like you're in free fall day after day after day. And so in an odd way, a situation that seems even more urgent doesn't have the emotional urgency that it once did. That in itself is, of course, one of the ways in which populists win. So that's concerning. But I want to move for the sort of second part of our conversation to the research bit of this. There's been a whole ton of research into questions of populism. Democracy the crisis hipsters like you and I who were worried before others are no longer as lonesome as we were then. What do you think the field of political science and related fields have figured out that we didn't know a few years ago? And have we figured anything out that we didn't know a few years ago? Or actually, has there been more heat than light? So I think that one of the things that political science does sometimes is complicate as well as it does clarify. And I think that's probably because the world is a pretty complicated place. So I would say that what we know about populism now is more than we did before, but in a way that has muddied the waters further. So I think the initial most dominant narrative about populism, both in the U.S. and in Europe, was that it was a heavily economic phenomenon. This was about globalization's losers. This was about people becoming poorer, about greater inequality. And in fact, one of the things that the research has told us is that narrative is just clearly not correct, at least not in its simple and straightforward form. So both in Europe and the United States, there hasn't been a huge amount of research that's been able to successfully directly connect people's individual economic positions with their voting. Then the pendulum swung in the other direction. Um, there was a great example of that in a column by Paul Krugman yesterday, right, which is, okay, it's not about economics. It's all about white nationalism. So then the narrative kind of switched from it was all about, again, economic losers, globalization's losers, to it's all about racism and white nationalism. And I think that the political science literature has complicated that second narrative as well. That's not to say that economic change and social change has not been important. It's not to say that globalization's losers and racism are unimportant. But one of the things I think all of this massive research has done has complicated our understanding by showing us not only how much these different things interact. In more insecure, risk-based worlds, people tend to hunker down and they tend to see in-groups and out-groups much more clearly. They tend to look for enemies and they tend to look for people to blame. And so that feeds into the social and cultural fears. And then the more you feel strongly about your own group, the less generous you are towards others, thereby changing your perceptions of different policies and making economic problems potentially worse. So, I mean, I think one of the things that we know is that there's no simple narrative, that there are hmm. a lot of things that have been going on over the last generations 
that were triggered in some way by things like the financial crisis, in Europe, the refugee crisis, in the United States, the election of our first African-American president, and the mobilization of minority groups. And so I think what we're learning now is that populism has to be seen as a, something whose roots are quite deep, who lie in changes that have happened over the past decades, but whose manifestation over the last, let's say, several electoral cycles also has to be explained by some very specific, what you might say, triggers. And also, again, responses, as you have written about as well, by democratic elites and institutions. So mm. sort of different levels of factors, all of which kind of fed into, so to speak, a kind of perfect storm that created this opportunity for real upheaval. So neither specifically short-term nor long-term, neither economic nor social exclusively, but this kind of mix of things that we're now trying to kind of distangle the manifestations of in different countries and the relationships among. That, I think, is a great description of the best state of knowledge in the field now. And it's important to draw out the contrast between what you just said and what's sometimes written by sort of people who claim to channel the consensus in the scholarly literature in Vox and the New York Times and other publications. Um, because I do think that in the public perception of where the scholarly debate has gone the last two years, it's just been proven that it has nothing to do with economics at all and it's all about race and so on. And there's a few problems with that narrative. One of those is that while at the individual level, there really is a strong correlation between the extent of your racial animus on various survey questions and your voting behavior, it's not clear why it is that this should have triggered a mass move to the right. Because when you look across time at answers to a whole set of questions, people haven't actually taken on more racist views. In fact, on most things, people have much less racist views than they had 20 or 30 years ago. So in the United States, you know, the number of people who think there's something wrong with interracial marriages has plummeted compared to 25, 30 years ago. Even the number of people who have positive views of immigration is higher than it was a few years ago. The number of people who think that having more diversity is a good thing for the country has gone up. So it's very difficult to explain how we got from the politics of the year 2000 to the politics of today just by looking at, well, how racist are people? Because we would then think, well, people are less racist than we were 20, 25 years ago. So surely we would also expect a politics just straightforwardly driven by white nationalism to be less powerful. Well, in fact, a politics that I do think in certain ways is driven by white nationalism is more powerful than it was. And so we have to have a more complicated explanation. And one thing that we haven't specifically mentioned, but that I know you're also quite interested in, is this idea of how erstwhile dominant groups respond when they feel that their dominance is threatened. That certainly, I think, is one of the mechanisms we're seeing playing out. And that can be driven by a whole set of different factors including economic factors, where they feel like the dominance is being lost, not just in some absolute sense out in the world, but also that it has a personal effect on them, that the neighborhood is not doing as well as it was, that they don't think the kids have a great future and so on. It's certainly driven by certain cultural and ethnic changes, including ones that, from my perspective, are very, very positive, like the better representation of people of color in the political system, in the media, and so on and so forth. And it might even be driven by certain political and institutional failings when they feel like, you know what, my institutions aren't very responsive to me. 
And I'm angry about that. And I used to have a sense of agency and now I don't. So I think thinking through this mechanism of when it is that groups that used to be dominant start to feel threatened and start to feel like they're declining is really important because it can then also point towards a solution, which is that we need to assure minorities in this country that we're going to fight against discrimination and against injustice and certainly against the full frontal attacks that the administration is driving on them right now. But if we want to have any form of social peace, we also have to find a way of telling the dominant group that they can give up parts of the unfair advantages they have and parts of the ways in which they were dominant, but still be assured of a good future. And thinking through that question, to me, is one of the biggest tasks right now. And I don't think enough is being done on that yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And this, again, I think circles back to some of the questions we were discussing earlier about narratives or understanding or vision. I mean, clearly we are in a time of fairly significant change on the social level, on the cultural level, on the economic level. And during times of change, people need help understanding what's going on and how that change should be adjusted to. I mean, that's why we have politicians and parties and governments, right? They're supposed to help us solve the challenges that our societies face. And so if people look around them and they see lots of change, some of which appears to them to be threatening, and they don't have a better way of understanding it, then the person who's peddling the easy, crappy solution may very well get a hearing. And I think, again, that what we have in this country, and there's a similar, although different dynamic, in Europe between sort of longer standing citizens and newer immigrant citizens is we need to understand that just because there are more people of X and they are no longer willing to take a subordinate role in the system, that this doesn't mean that group Y is necessarily in decline, right? So there has to be a sense that we are not facing a zero-sum situation. And that's not just for electoral or pragmatic reasons. It's for larger intellectual, political, just the health of liberal democracy reasons. Liberal democracy has to be the better system because it can give a better life to everyone. It's not a zero-sum system where Group X wins an election and that necessarily means that Group Y is going to lose. We need to be able to convince people that we can all benefit from a series of different kinds of policies or approaches to politics, that we have good solutions Mm. for how economic, social, cultural change can strengthen rather than weaken our societies. And I think we really haven't been able to come up with, that is to say, we people who are committed liberal Democrats, whether they swing slightly left or slightly right, of how this system can solve all of these challenges and changes, respond to these challenges and changes that our societies face. And they are significant and they are real, and we shouldn't pretend that we aren't going through this period of a significant shift. But if we don't come up with these solutions, then people are going to hunker down into their groups and they're not going to care about what happens to the other group. They're only going to care about themselves because there's no one telling them that it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that that's the real ultimate danger in what we face today. So the last time that you were on the podcast, you had a great set of ideas about what people could do at the end. What would you say today if you still do have a sinking feeling and still actually are motivated to go and defend our political institutions, what should you do if you are an influential policymaker or a player within, for example, the Democratic Party? What should you do? How is it with the new knowledge we've gained over the last couple of years that we can try and defend our institutions until hopefully we replace Donald Trump as president of the United States in 2020 and going beyond that as well. So I think there are, to maybe end with a more helpful note, I think there are a lot of people who have realized the trouble that we're in and in particular realized that not just for a healthy left but for a healthy democracy, we need a more vibrant, a stronger 
Democratic Party. And so there actually has been long overdue lots of work to try to revitalize the grassroots of the Democratic Party, to try to rebuild the party from the ground up. It had atrophied in many parts of the country where it didn't actually even contest elections or have apparatuses to recruit and run candidates. And that has begun to change. I think that is incredibly positive. There's lots of evidence, again, that things are going on at the grassroots that are quite, again, unusual over the past couple of decades. And I think this is a really, really positive trend because, again, whether you like the Democratic Party or not, in the system we have in the United States, you need two healthy parties in order to be able to have the system function well. And so I think that's really important. So if you care about politics, then the best thing you can do is to get involved, is to get involved in the Democratic Party if you are a center center-left person, and to try to figure out ways to find more institutional and other ways of connecting people to the political system so that they can be socialized into the rules of the game, because ultimately, those are the things that we want to preserve, and that they can come into contact with people who, again, maybe have different backgrounds, different views, um, different experiences from them, and recognize that they're all in this together, right, Mm. which is that they have to build a strong liberal democracy because, you know, participation is what it's all about. And I would even add one more thing to that, which is that I always realized when I started to think about this, that this is going to be a long-term struggle. But I think the extent to which the Republican Party has been captured by Trumpism, at least for now, only deepens that conviction of mine. And even in the best case scenario in which we, you know, resoundingly hound Donald Trump out of the White House in 2020 by uh, his opponent winning, you know, 48 states or something like that, the existence of a deeply populist Republican Party will still pose serious long-term risk to our political system. So actually, in my mind, the acute danger to American democracy will only pass if in 2024, if in 2020 we beat Donald Trump, and if in 2024 somebody with a real commitment to liberal democracy wins the nomination for the Republican Party. That might represent a return to normalcy. But in order for that to happen... We need conservatives, with whom I will disagree on all kinds of issues from gun control to economic policy, to either regain control of the Republican Party or start a party to replace it. And so if you listen to this podcast and you're more on that side of the ideological spectrum, I think thinking about how you can push that change forward is just as important. So, Shari, I've been reading for the last days your forthcoming book, which I believe will come out in 2019, Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe from the Ancien Regime to... The present day. The present day, that's right. One isn't supposed to talk about one's books before they're out because all the publicity should happen in one nice push. So we'll stick to that rule and I'll just have to have you back on for the third time to discuss what really is going to be an important book. But thanks so much for coming back on the podcast and giving us this wonderful overview of where we're at and what we got to do now. Thank you. Happy to have been here. Thank you, Shari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Order up an edible arrangement that spells out The Good Fight and send it to at least 10 of your friends. If each of them also send it to 10 of your friends, we're definitely going to get some weird news coverage. And finally... Please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. 
This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.